Welcome to Tzarech Iyun, a podcast from Yeshivat Oraita. Listen in as two Rebbeim reflect with one another on current events and unpack central Hashkafic questions that affect how they view the world. A forum for diversion perspectives informed by both study and lived experience, these conversations will illuminate a handful of the Shivim Panima Torah and scratch the surface of ideas which may in fact require further exploration. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Tzarech Iyun podcast brought to you by Yeshivat Oraita. My name is David Silverstein, and today I have the pleasure of having on the podcast Professor Chaim Seyman, uh, law professor at Villanova University. Chaim, thank you so much for coming on the Tzarech Iyun podcast. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's a pleasure to be here. I will tell you that uh, I do have fond memories of Villanova. Uh, I'm a child of the 1980s, so I do remember uh, the Villanova basketball team. And that my grandparents, as I mentioned to you before we started, lived in Overbrook Park, and we used to drive by Villanova all the time on the way to their house. And I used to have these dreams of uh, being on the Villanova basketball team. Unfortunately, it never materialized. Although I did hear you mention one time in a sheer you gave that you told a great story where you bumped in, or maybe you were at Gush, and you saw Aaron Lichtenstein, and he said, how's it going? Where are you up to? And you said... I'm a professor at Villanova, and he said something like, oh, they have a great basketball team. Is, is that an accurate assessment of the story? Yes. Okay. So anyway, I, I appreciate and, that. And that. But the rest of it, I then went to my friends like, what, even Ravarin? Like, you too? Right. Um, you know, maybe that, you know, everyone else has Villanova for basketball, but like, I was asking, I was hoping Ravarin would say, well, what are you working on this? But, um, right. you know, it was one of these great moments of personal deflation. Yeah, it just shows the power of Villanova basketball that even. I'd also I have to add that their glory days were not just in the eighties. Uh, the past couple of years, they've won uh, two and. That's true. Fair, fair. That's a that's a fair point. I, I'm I'm a cab of the ha- the hara. Um, so actually, this this month um, on the Tzarechim podcast, we're talking about the topic of Gemara. Obviously, it's a central topic, and we're talking today on uh, Gimel Elul in America, right? Dalit Elul in, in Israel, and. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, obviously, the question of Gemara in the world of Yeshivot is sort of the uh, topic that reigns supreme, right? Obviously, in classical Yeshivot, people are studying 10, 12, 14, 15 hours a day of Gemara. And you wrote a really incredible book uh, called The Halacha, The Rabbinic Idea of Law, which is an attempt, I think, to sort of frame uh, the larger conversation about what is the project, the larger project of Gemara, of Halacha, and what exactly are the rabbis, were the rabbis trying to accomplish. So it's really a remarkable book. And as I mentioned to you before we began, we could do a podcast on every single chapter. So we're not going to do that. Don't worry. But uh, it really is an amazing book. And if you could begin, I think one of the really creative framings that you have at the beginning of the book is how you begin in sort of an atypical place for a book on Jewish law. And you even acknowledge this in the book itself by quoting the New Testament. And you acknowledge sort of the Christian critique of halakha, and then you sort of move to discuss sort of how rabbis throughout the generations or different scholars have responded to the Christian critiques. Maybe just to begin, you know, in, in a nutshell, sort of what was the Christian critique of halakha and sort of how did different rabbis uh, respond to the observations of the Christians? Sure. So um, I, I my background is pretty, you know, traditionally, uh, traditional up till a certain point. So I never read the New Testament or the Gospels uh, until I was going uh, after law school and after a number of years in yeshiva, I was going to clerk for a judge who uh, is and was a very uh, well-known American legal scholar, judge, Protestant, and kind of fairly well-known in the law and religion sphere. His name is Michael McConnell. Uh, He was which is where I moved to for a little bit. 
Uh, and I decided, you know, I should probably read like a little bit of the New Testament. A, going to Utah, B, you know, working for this judge, not Mormon, he was Protestant, uh, but, you know, nevertheless, uh, so I was literally like nothing more than, you know, in a hotel room one night, right when I got to Utah before I, you know, we found a place to live and all that. So, you know, there's a Bible. So I'm like, hey, let me read it. So I just like go. And I was expecting this to sound very, very foreign. Um, you know, I grew up in Atlanta in the 70s as a kid. And uh, there's not much on TV Sunday. So occasionally you'd hear like, you know, this like church service and whatnot. And it was just a different world. And that's sort of what I was expecting. And all of a sudden I'm reading this and, you know, it's like, it sounds vaguely familiar. Like, I'm like, mm, I kind of know what they're talking about. And I'm in my head translating back into Hebrew. Like, what would some of this sound like? And what particularly struck me was a variety of passages uh, over, you know, in, in, in the Synoptic Gospels. Um, where Jesus um, basically has debates with the Pharisees, who are the Prussian, the kind of forerunners of, of Chazal. That is also a whole question, but we'll leave that. And they are arguing about what, to put it in like yeshivish terms, is sort of the boundaries of halacha. Um, they, they, there's a bunch of stories about halacha Shabbos, and are you being too machmer, and are you only focusing on the technicalities and on the bigger picture? Um, there's the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, in which he's, Jesus says all sorts of things, actually many of them appear in Chazal, of the flavor of, you know, don't only look at the small details, uh, look at the big picture, and challenging uh, the Pharisees for, for failing to do that. Um, one of my favorite examples is that he says, you know, you focus on tithing uh, savory and time and hyssop and neglect the weightier matters of the law, Right. And I always say, yeah, it's kind of funny. There's a mission in Meisters that talks about that exactly, right? So when one person's like, you know, this is crazy, is what the other side says, yes, of course, this is what we do. Then you have uh, a good debate. And what really struck me in these, and then, of course, Paul, um, his, his student, who himself starts life as a Prushi, says this famous statement in English, right? He contrasts what he calls the letter of the law to the spirit of the law, which is something that, that we still carry with us today. Uh, it's also in, in, in legal scholarship. This, this shows up all the time. And what was striking to me is that so many of the debates that sort of we often have internally uh, within the Orthodox community between, you know, Hasid and Misnagdim, between Maskilim and, and uh, you know, a traditionalist form and, and Orthodox, and, and within our community, of course, um, are really sort of presaged here. And what, what really struck me is even before the project of the Mishnah really gets off ground, right? I mean, Dating here is fuzzy, but these texts are probably a little bit, you know, 100 years earlier or so. Um, already in the air is the thing that would become typical of the Mishnah. And almost historically, right, the document that comes first is already a critique of it, uh, which I found really, really fascinating. Um, and as, I say, as long as there's been halacha in the form that we know it, you know, from the Mishnah down, uh, there has been alongside it a critique. Sometimes by, you know, you could go back and say the Nevi'im are already doing this, right? We read not so long ago, uh, Shabbos Chazon has one of the famous ones, right? Um, but certainly, and you could, but certainly, um, you know, in Jesus, and then both extrinsic to Judaism, often particularly in Christian, in medieval Christianity, with deep anti-Semitic overtones, that spills out um, into the Enlightenment and beyond, and then internally. Uh, this this sort of critique is always there. Like, this is just a bunch of details. What's the larger vision? 
And what I what I sense is that there's always been a few different responses. One says, well, okay, that's true about halacha, but Judaism is much broader than halacha. There's Tanakh, there's Machshava, there's poetry. There, take your pick, right? There's Kabbalah, Hasidus, um, philosophy, linguistics, whatever your other thing is, that you know, don't conflate um, Judaism with Halacha. That's one answer. A, a kind of related answer is, well, the thing we call Halacha is really you know, the product of a very different specific type of elite rabbinic culture. But, you know, then as now, that never subsumed all Jews and all Judaism. I think both those things are right. But what they basically admit is, to the degree we're talking about halacha, that's right. You know, and then they sort of argue, sort of like, how big is the circle or the sphere of halacha within the broader sphere of Judaism? And then there's a sort of alternate response, maybe you could call it a contemporary yeshivish response, that's exactly right. This is what makes us amazing, is that we, you know, we focus in on these small things, and we make sure we get everything technically right, and that's sort of the beauty of halacha is precisely its rigor and precision, and not sort of getting lost in these broader things. There's elements of this, of course, in Yishalacha by the Rav, of course, he has counter elements as well, and uh, I think that, you know, you'll hear this in and around uh, more contemporary yeshiva circles, variations of this. So to me, those are like the responses on the table. And what I try to do is say, well, okay, but let's talk about halacha, meaning let's, let's leave aside, we, we could argue about how big that should be within the box we call Judaism, but let's look at it. And then, you know, both drawing on my own yeshiva experience, but then also certainly taking it in a different way, saying, hmm, but 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 look what happens here is that because halacha is all-encompassing, so the way I phrase it in the book is, if law is everything, then everything is law, right? That one of the things we see, I think most clearly in the Bavli, but of course in the Mishnah before and in the commentaries that stem out of it, is that Chazal and their and subsequent interpreters wind up using halacha to do the cultural work that maybe other cultures assign to philosophy, to literature, to literary criticism, to social action, to whatever it is. In other words, that halacha encompasses a far broader range of things and jobs then we would call law. And part of what the book is trying to do, and as I say in the introduction, is that halakha does both much more and much less than what law does. And I think if we frame that and understand that and try to grab our, you know, grab that issue and dilemma by the horns, we might move a little bit forward to understanding what halakha is and what Talmud Torah is for, which I think is very much uh, leaded to, to your questions. So basically, if I had to sort of summarize that last point, it sounds to me like um, one of the sort of central theses of your book is the idea that, you know, on paper, you read Mishnaic texts or texts in the Talmud, and it seems like, you know, it's sort of arbitrary details, right? It seems sort of random. It seems that on some level, the Christians were onto something. And your claim is that, you know, what seems at first glance to be arbitrary, what seems to be random, actually when understood properly, right, oftentimes can be or was the medium through which the rabbis discussed values, discussed virtue, discussed much larger ideas. And it's really about sort of reorienting yourself as a student to realize that what seems like superficially to be a tangential or almost silly conversation is actually quite profound. And so I, I, I'd say, I, I, I'd like to phrase it this way. Let's be open to that, right? I don't want to claim that that's always true, okay? I can't tell you that every Daphne of Amos 
um, you know, has some like, and I, in fact, Dafka coming out of Israel, there's sometimes things they think are trying too hard. Uh, but on the flip side, I would say, let's be open to that. What I try to do in the book is take some examples that to me are very clear that that's what's going on. And then once we're open to that, we can sort of see how far it goes in different places. That's okay. So, so yeah, that's actually a great segue because uh, one of the things I want to do is give some examples and then sort of ask a, a, a sort of slightly critical question, which is, you know, to what extent do you think this is sort of commonplace in the Talmud? But before we get there, let's give a few examples. Uh, one of the really interesting examples that you mentioned in the book actually comes up from uh, this past week's Parsha, which is the story of the Egla Rufa. And the story involves a very interesting ritual where you have, you know, somebody who is killed and, you know, it's basically the person is found to be between two cities and the elders of one of the, of one of the cities in proximity to the dead body, right, have to engage in this ritual to basically declare that they themselves were not involved in any way, right, in the murder of this person. So the Gemara has a discussion about, well, how do we determine, right, which city, if the body is sort of found between two cities, um, should be the one to engage in the ritual process? And the Gemara says, well, you measure. So the question that comes up in the Gemara is, well, where do you measure from, right? So the Gemara gives two possibilities. One possibility is the nose, right? And one possibility is the belly button, right? And, and this, I think, really is sort of a great way to sort of highlight your point, which is, you know, if I were to teach this text to somebody who had no yeshiva background, and they would say, wait a second, you have this sort of larger conversation being had about like civic responsibility and responsibility of the rabbis in terms of their communities and murder, and all of a sudden it gets reduced to a question of where do we measure from the nostril or the belly button, right? But you actually have a really interesting reading, which I'm, I'd be happy if you could sort of spell out here, which says that there's something much deeper going on there. And it's not a question simply of belly buttons and noses. It's actually a much deeper conversation about what it, does it mean to be a human. So maybe you could just describe how you read that sugya. Sure, sure. So I'm, I'm glad you picked on that, not only because, you know, it was it was the Barsha uh, of yesterday, uh, but also because to me, this is almost like the simplest example. Um, and, and when I try to, you know, have to do this in a quick form, I, I usually go here. I'll also say it's also one of the most extreme examples, right? So we'll, we'll get there. Now, you already, in your presentation, I just want to pause here, already framed the laws of Egla Rufa in a way towards this, right? Because you said, and I completely agree, but I just want to step, right? Because you could learn the last, you know, the last, the final prakim of Sota and miss what you just said. But what happens here is that we are after an Egla Rufa, something that the truth is our society has a hard time with, which is um, responsibility for a criminal act that doesn't lie with the person committing the crime, right? Every time, I would say this, every time there's a, a, a gun, a mass shooting here in America, we have this very often, uh, too often, right? So then everyone is very good at pointing to the shooter, right? Um, but then when the question comes about the responsibility for the broader body, body politic, everyone says lone wolf, deranged actor, it doesn't matter, anti-Semitic attack, wh whatever it is. Um, I think, and here, of course, I draw on, on Ravon Lichtenstein, who, who made this point in a very different context, worth its own podcast. Um, but but what Egla Rufa is after in, 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 in the Gemara's drush of Yadenu lo shavchu, when the Bezdin has to say that we didn't kill it, and of course the Gemara says, what, does anybody think that they uh, that they initiate, they, that they're murderers? But no, they created, to use our words, the cultural conditions allowing this to happen. Meaning, there's a type of responsibility that is not the responsibility of the direct actor. 
it is maybe not punishable. I mean, certainly not punishable in any sort of way, but there's a moral weight there of how are we responsible for our cultural conditions? And that's really hard because both sort of American criminal law and thought, and to some degree even halakha, uh, look, focuses at the doer. And then beyond that, you're sort of in the realm of kind of fuzzy values. And here you see, just the way you framed it, before we get into the Maikhidish, um, I think you already are on the way to this form of reading. So wait a minute, what sort of idea is being presented here? An idea of responsibility that is not for the action, but for their cultural conditions that makes an action possible. Okay. Now, as you said, if we wanted to take the embody the, I'll call it the Jesus critique, right? So then, then this Mishnah in Sota, in the ninth paragraph of Sota, uh, is almost like the perfect example of halacha ganwan. Because here we are talking about a person was killed, right? We don't know who, who murdered him. Right? The elders, the, 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 the judges, according to the Gemara, maybe even the king and the Sanhedrin, whatever it is, has to come out and investigate. And then, and then what's the mission dealing with? Right? So there's a series of two Mishnahs. Maybe it's one, one Mishnah that's divided up in two parts that says basically, well, what happens if the head is severed from the body. Do we measure from the head or do we measure from the body? And then they say, well, Malik, right, do you drag the head to the body or the body to the head? And then the Mishnah takes it a step further and says, okay, where would they measure from? So here again, Rabbi Lezer says, as he said, from his belly button, from his navel, and Rabbi Akiva says from his nostrils. So if we just look at it that way, you're like, oh my gosh, right? You're in the middle of something that we just stipulated was very important. And now you're you're debating the the the, 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 the inches between this. Now I'd go even further. Nowhere does the Mishnah or the Gemara say where we measure to. You're supposed to measure the town. Where in the town? Right? So seemingly, if we're down to the level that the nafkamina between the nose and the navel becomes important, I would say much more important to where in the town we measure to. The shul, the, the main street, the 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 you know the the town hall, whatever it is. And like that's all absent in the Gemara. So Right away, you're like, what is going on? But then, and I like this example because the Gemara does it for you. And the Gemara says, the argument? I'll translate it as sort of where's the, the essence of the life force, right? The primary element of life, we might say. So is it in his nostrils, which is why you measure from there, or is it in his navel, which is why we measure from there? And then the Yushami sort of explains a little bit. Uh, he says, is it from the Makam Yitzir Savlad or from the place that the face is recognized? Now, here I think the Gemara basically goes, I would say, from zero to 10 in one jump. So I, you know, we can argue about what Iker Chiyute means, right? But clearly it's a different type of conversation than measuring. And I think my interpretation is that it's asking some version of this question. Hooray, every day when you drive down the road here in America, certainly you'll see a dead uh, squirrel, uh, sometimes even a deer, sometimes even bigger. And, you know, you basically just drive by. But if you see a dead person, then hopefully, and I would say the Torah commands you to, stop, right? Call, today we'd call 911, investigate, right? Like, this is not the same thing. Which it quickly gets to the question, what's the difference? Why is it that 
almost any other you know carcass of a of a life form we just kind of go about our business and over here we have to stop right and again we have to like in the in the in the Gemara, you have to do more call the police. You got to call the president, of the Supreme Court, right? You got to like get engage the entire body politic in this process. That clearly is asking some version of what makes humans special, right? Which is a question that every society is going to ask in one way or another. It has to. Right now, it's about whether they can, whatever answer they come up, right? Every society asks, and I think that that's kind of what's here. That Rabbi Lezer, by putting it in the navel, that's what is shared with every other mammal, certainly, is sort of looking at humans more in the sense of on a continuum with, with the, the animal kingdom. And Rabbi Akiva, going to the place where the face is nikar, right? What makes humans unique, right? You won't be surprised that, of course, when God wants to animate Adam, he blows into his nose, right? Um, so clearly, it's then engaged in that kind of question. Now, we can go further, but I just want to pause here that in other words, so I would say that's what this sugi is about, right? That's what this that's what this is about. That's why it's an egla rufa, right? That's why it's smushed in the middle. It's a way of getting at this question. It's not the way I naturally ask this question. It's not the way we, you know, who are sort of Western trained and thinking those concepts naturally ask that question. That's fine. That's fine. I think there are pros and cons to each. I can talk about that later. But I would say if you if you just read this and don't notice that there's some larger issue at here, and I think here the Gemara is doing the work for you, right? Iker Chiyute is already taking you to a different space and, and talking about place where you're created, place where the face is recognized, where God inserts the, the neshama into man, right? We're already in a different kind of conversation. And what I want to say is be open to this. This happens. This is part of what the Gemara does. Not the only thing the Gemara does. It's not what the Gemara always does, but it's certainly one of the things. The, I mean, you have a lot of really interesting examples in the book, and maybe we could transition for one second to another example, which I think is maybe less overt, but I think that the, the reading is also quite creative. Um, you reference a, a Mishnah in Brachot, uh, which discusses uh, whether or not a person is able to pray to God, right, to have um, the, uh, the gender of his child, right? Be, let's say he's praying for a, a male child, right? So is that a problem, right? And the Mishnah says that basically that would be a prayer in vain. The assumption being is that, you know, the natural order has already sort of, uh, you know, done its work and to pray for something to undo the natural order, right? Would not be sort of within the rubric, what we consider to be sort of acceptable prayer. And then there's another view, which you reference also in the Gemara, which seems to sort of push back on, on that theme. Maybe if, again, if you could just sort of take us through that sugya also. Because um, I think in this book, it's not necessarily as overt. Uh, you actually quote in the book, uh, Professor Moshe Halbertal, who has a creative reading of uh, understanding this sugya. I'm curious if you could just, A, sort of begin with, you know, what exactly is going on in this sugya? And sort of, you know, methodologically, is there anything different, I would say, in this sugya from your perspective than what you saw in the previous sugya, where it may be more overt? This is funny. I, I think this is overt in a different way, right? So, listen, as soon as we have a thing called davening, right, prayer, whatever it is, Right, you're going to ask, well, does it work? And how does it work, right? And I think this Mishnah, it's the Mishnah of the very end of Brachos, right? In, in the ninth parak, which is a fun parak, but generally not thought to be like, you know, full of big halachic concepts. Um, but I think it's full of things like this. It says, listen, and we, right, there's a certain point. Let, let, let's take an extreme example. Once someone has been, when someone's very sick, we daven for them to live, right? Once someone has been nifter, we don't daven for tchiyas 
I mean, we done for TSMA medicine some like, you know, broad medicines, but on an individual person, we understand you're done. If someone amputates their hand, right? You don't dive in for their hand to grow back. That doesn't happen. Maybe you dive in for good prosthetics. Maybe you dive in for a successful surgery, right? So we all carry with us this sense that though we, we believe that tefillah is efficacious, right? But 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 we don't dive in really for miracles. Or if we dive in for miracles, even a definition of miracle is like, wow, the doctor said the cancer is really bad, right? We should dive in that it gets better, right? Or it disappears. But but we don't dive in for people to regrow limbs. That just doesn't happen, right? And that's the question that this Gemara is talking about, which is God comes into town and um, and if his wife is pregnant, sort of at what point can he daven for a male child? And at what point is that set and no longer a part of part of the things you daven for? And it would be like davening for someone who just was nifter to, to be resurrected right here and there. So, you know, I think that's what that sugi is about. Now, the Mishnah presents it one way, and then the Gemara immediately says, wait a minute, there are other sources that seem to be that, that you can daven later in the process, not just when she's pregnant, maybe until she gives birth, the Gemara then brings in an agadita that everybody knows that Dina was switched from a male to female. So you see it happens. So again, like there's another case where, okay, you could say this, like, uh, when am I allowed to dab? Right? In this very like technical sense. Because like, step back, it's like, wait, what's being talked about here? What's being talked about here is like, what does davening do? What, what is within the power of Fila? What is outside the power of Tefillah? So that's a question that as soon as anyone starts davening, we ask this. We have to ask this. Now, there are different places where the lines are and you know, probably different substreams of Judaism place it differently. But we all know that there are lines. And I would say, rather than think of this as like Hilchas Tefillah only in the narrowest sense, let's think about this as asking in its own way, how does to what extent does tefillah work? When does tefillah not work? What is appropriate to daven for? What is inappropriate to daven for? That's what that sugi is about. I guess the reason why I sort of use the phrase of being less overt is because you know one of the things that I, I struggle with, both as somebody who teaches Gemara and somebody who also loves learning Gemara, is I'm very attracted to uh, the type of analysis that you do in the book. And there are some scholars in Israel, I assume in the U.S. also, who are sort of trying to integrate the learning within the larger context of religious meaning and trying to figure out what are the sort of under... Uh, the sort of the larger values being expressed. The question I have is sort of twofold. You know, number one, how frequent would you say this type of analysis can be found in the context of, let's say, a given, you know, Masech? You know, let's say you're learning, I mean, I'm preparing now for Masech Sukkah. So you learn Masech Sukkah. You know, the question is how many times in a, in a given Masech do you think that this type, these types of analyses are sort of accessible? That's number one. And the second question, which really relates to my comment from before, is, how many times do you find that Rishonim themselves are articulating or understanding sugyas, right, in the way you describe? In other words, in the example, the sugya Masechet Brachot, so you quoted Moshe Halbertal, obviously a very important uh, contemporary academic scholar. Not a Rishon. He's not the Rashba, right? He's not the Rashba, he's not the Karanor, right? So the question is, is that uh, to what extent do you think that, you know, the, the language that you're describing, right, was also part of the language of the Rishon? Now, admittedly, you know, what you're trying to do in the book at the beginning is talk primarily about Chazal proper, but I'm going to sort of want to expand outward for a second and ask, A, how frequent do you think this type of learning is Pot can be possibly done in the context of Shas, and secondarily, you know, to what extent is this reading a creative reading of of Professor Chaim Seiman, or is this part of the worldview, right, of let's say Rishonim, Achronim, that they're open to these readings as well? Sure. 
So, so let, let's, part of what, what we're a little bit stuck with here is like this type. So you pick two examples that are dafka about religious meaning. So, you know, if your listeners don't know, my day job is I'm a law professor. I teach contracts, I teach insurance, I teach arbitration. Um, I actually find in a very different way in dafka and the Nashim Nazikim, you know, in other words, they're not like spiritual, things that are not necessarily spiritually meaningful in the in, in that sense, but sort of legally illuminating, right? What are the legal principles? I'm typically attracted to that. I did some of that in the book. I didn't only do that because I do think, uh, you know, so brachas and sukkah would code differently than bavakama bavavasra, just to, just to, to say. Uh, let me tell you what I think my, my shita is. To, to think about these things broadly, and then I'll try to answer some of your questions, which is, I say, read the sugya and try to identify what it's talking about. Then what I do, certainly I do this when it's in the law frame, right? But I think if you're in something like brachas or sukkah, you know, things like theology and religious studies, and go read deeply in the, I'll call it the secular literature, or the not specifically Talmudic literature is probably the better way to think about it. Uh, on this topic, what what do people identify as the major issues, the major questions, uh, the major debates? Because I am not smart enough, typically, to generate them from the sugya itself. And then, with that knowledge, go back and relearn the sugya, and now see whether certain things that whether it's Tanaim, Amaraim, Rishonim, Achronim, we're debating about that you felt like, okay, whatever. Like, wait a minute. Is that a way of asking this question? It might, it's typically not as overt, right? Almost never. We could talk about writing styles in a second. It's almost never that overt. But I think armed with the, the a, a broad view of what, what, when one approaches this topic, are the questions one asks, I think often, not always, one then at least finds another layer of meaning and intent in what's being debated. Now, does that mean that that's what they thought? Whoever the they is, Ravana Abaye, Rashba, Ritva, I don't know. Sometimes I think more yes, sometimes maybe not. But it is touching on that sort of question. And that itself is worth analysis. Now, Rishonim, Achronim, uh, do they, so I think that they, right, so I have some places in the book. I think, you know, the Marsha's Chidusha Agadot, so I draw from him not, uh, not, uh, you know, not infrequently, and I think he's on to some of these questions. Uh, is it phrased exactly this way? Absolutely not. Um, I think in the Rishonim, you do find some awareness on some of these issues. Um, not always, and not in the same way, and again, uh, that's in part because they tend to write, you know, take someone like the Ramban, right? He tends to write one way on in his parish on, on Chumash and one way in his in his Chidushim on, on Shas and a different way in the Mohammas and a different way in his um you know various like I don't know what you call them, like essays, I guess. Right. So 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 that stuff is in there. Um, but clearly he's always drawing on these things to like tell you what it is. What I like to do is sort of not separate it from the learning of the sugya, but this is the learning of, of the sugya to a degree. But as I said, I'm not a big force it, okay? I do think I've read some stuff, which to me is like, I go, uh, trying too hard, right? I think you want to be tight linguistically, conceptually, and linguist, um, you know, especially, but let's talk about places where it's almost yelling at you. When you have these mixed 
halachic and agadic sugyas, right? So here I was here I critique the standard Rishonic slash Yeshiva approach. It just blows past the agadic. Well, right. right? Chazal put them together. Okay, so that to me is a place to look. Crazy ukimtas, right? So what I want to say is like there are there are pearls of sand that are like grading that maybe that's the place to look, right? So when you have like sometimes you know in Part of what I try to do in the book is like, you know, we, I think classically we divide halacha and I got into two different boxes. But there's a lot of sugis that are mixes. There's I got thrown in there, or there's like an I got a, a narrative framing to an otherwise halachic thing, or they move back and forth. The sugi we just talked about, right? It starts with a halacha question of tefillah, but it immediately brings in this agadita of dina switching, right? So I think those to me are like flags, right? Look here, you know, like, like a, like, you know, peer under, right? Uh, the the sugi we talked about with Egla Rufar, not exactly pure halachic language. Right. Now, there's a lot of these in Shas, and I would say, right, um, if Ravina Ravash, you ever compile the Shas, put these things together with the full admission that the that basically the Rishonim until the generation of the Marsha and, um, you know, the Maral and the Yaakov, right, started like thinking about these things again. But but it's true that the Godim and then the Rishonim basically ignored the Agatha. Okay, fine. But here it is, and that's what we're learning. So so let's pay more attention to that. Mm-hmm. Very interesting. Yeah, and one of the uh, really interesting things to think experientially that you know almost everybody feels when they're in Yeshiva is you know, you're so deeply immersed in these sugyas and you spend like the entire year learning Baba Kama or whatever Masecha you're learning, and you know there there isn't much discussion, at least in, in many, if not most yeshivot, about sort of practical halacha. You know, I once heard Rav Avram Stav talk about how he came home from yeshiva and his sister asked him, you know, do you go back if you forgot Ritzay at Shalshudis? So she he's like he knew all the shitas, but he had no idea sort of like how to paskin halacha lamaisa. And it was interesting experientially, which I think your book does an amazing job for framing. Is you, know, you talk about in the book this idea that. Um, Part of, you know, you have non-applied law is not like a bug of the system. It's sort of a feature, right? And, mm-hmm. you, and you talk about how, you know, there are some examples in the Gemara where the Gemara will say things like this will never happen. You know, some of the obvious examples like the Ben Sora So, you know, before we talk a little bit about the period of the Rishonim, I'm curious if you could describe a little bit what you mean by this idea. The idea that somehow you have this system, which on the one hand is very legal, and obviously law is intended to be actualized, right? But built into the rabbinic conception of law is this idea that, you know, some things are actually not going to be applied, right? How, how does that sort of reframe your understanding of sort of how halacha, sort of how Gemara right, is viewed by, or was viewed by Chazal? Sure. And now here you're probably, you know, touching on was probably the central thesis um, or of the book. So I, I, again, let me go a little bit uh, autobiographically because I think we're talking to some degree to, to Talmidim uh, in Yeshiva who are you know, now in the kind of prime of their hardcore Gemara learning years. And I was one of these kids, I was a weird kid, still I am a weird person, was a weird kid that like went to Yeshiva and always asked a question that like nobody exactly had a straight answer to or nobody. And I felt, and to some degree, you know, I'm glad we're talking to these students because look, it's not for everybody for sure. And if it doesn't bother you, skip and go learn and have a, and enjoy life. But I was one of these kids that was always bothered by it. What are we talking about? You know, listen, it's, we're in the middle of great parshas for this, right? We just came off a of Shoftim, uh, you know, we're in Kitetse, we've got, you know, Egla Rufa, we've got Adam Zomamin, we've got the Sanhedrin, we've got the Navi Sheker, We've got the uh, the Zake Mamre, 
right? All these like big structural things. And you're like, let's take Adam's Zomavid, right? Like, like by the time Chazal are done with this, you can't imagine this ever happening, right? Because it's so many specific qualifications. Ben Saramar, the Gemara comes out and says it, right? Tosefta, Tosefta says about three things. Um, I talk about Zavin uh, in there, right? Which is sort of usually not in this uh, in this uh, in this parameter, but basically Shita Rabbi Kiva is yeah, there might never be a Zav, right? So we've got the Bait Hamanuga, we've got the Ben Saramar, we've got the Eridachas, right? As I said, best time of the year to do to do this uh, to do this. We got the Adam Zomim in, and if you start thinking about it as a lawyer, as a law professor, in terms of like governance, right? You're like, and this is why I say that halacha is much less than law because so many of these areas are not even plausibly governed by this. Let's not talk about the whole criminal law structure of the Sanhedrin where you need Adam Masra Tochide Dibur for Misa, many shitas for Malkus too, and those are basically only punishments. Um, and then we see this other system, what I call sub-halacha, you already see it in the Gemara, then stronger the Rishonim in Ad Badimenu, of, well, okay, so if the guy gets off, you put him in a prison cell, and you, and you know, if the guy gets off from a murder on a kind of technicality, and a technicality, you put him in a, you put him in a, uh, in a prison cell, and you feed him a certain diet where he dies, or, or whatnot, or, you know, the, the famous Drasha Haran, which I assume we'll come to, that, well, the Drew, that's the court, but the king has other authorities, um, you know, and so on and so on. And there's this whole other system of, and by the way, you can even think about it like in terms of Hilchah Shabbos, right? If, if I tell you, you're just keeping Hilchah Shabbos de Arisa, right? You can basically kind of do whatever you want, right? And it's really the structure of the Drabanans that make Shabbos uh, what we know. So there's always this like push and pull, but but even let's leave Shabbos aside and the Drabanans aside, um, you know, like, it, like just even basic adus, right? So I, I serve on a basin. Um, you know, we've never had adus in the sense of two disinterested parties who happen to witness something, right? In Bezin, you're always talking to the Bali Din and maybe his partner and maybe his brother and maybe his wife and right? all these people who are possible adus in any in, in any technical sense, right? So like what is so those are all the ways that I say it's like, well, you know, like. Once you actually think about this as a lawyer, as a law professor, in terms of like what governance structure emerges, very quickly you realize that this doesn't exactly work. So then what are these rules for? Well, what's going on here? But on the other hand, I also say it's much more than law, right? And this gets into some of the cultural aspects that we were talking about before, uh, you know, Dafyomi, right? So there's no equivalent for, uh, you know, a statute a day in, in America or, or in Israel or in any other country. Um, you know, the idea that, you know, we're going to fill a stadium uh, to celebrate the completion of the U.S. bankruptcy code, um, like for the Siemashas, is, is ridiculous, right? I always said, like, you know, can you imagine somebody gets up at, at their kid's, I don't know, bris, bar mitzvah, wedding, whatever, it's, ah, I have a gavad chiddush in the uniform commercial code, you see, in section 223, but like, we've all been, now, whether this is the most effective use of Shevard Brachas Tyra, we could debate, but we've all done it. Right. So it tells me that that halacha or in here I'll say Torah. Right. So that 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 is both much smaller than the thing we think about law, because it, Jews were always governed by alternate systems, whether it's Mishpat HaMelech, whether it's secular law, whether it's Minag, Dina Malchsa, whatever it is. And on the other hand, much more is that they're doing so much more with it than any other culture ascribes to its legal system.
Uh, again, most maybe demonstrably by things like the Siyam Ashas or Dafyomi or Vartaras, but also no other religious or secular civil legal system has the study of law as an ideal, a universalized ideal. Right? There's no mitzvah for every American to be bucky in contract law, right? There's lawyers whose job it is for money or maybe for free to, to help people out with these sorts of problems. There's no independent value in knowing it. As I would say, I have a very strange job. I'm one of about 10,000 people in America, America's a very big country, whose job it is to think about abstract analytical questions of law for fun. Okay, that's why I'm a law professor. But that is a minuscule amount of the society, right? That is roughly 10,000 people in a country of 330 million or whatnot. Now, in reality, of course, not every Jew is a big Talmud Chacham and holding in Ksosis and Nesibasis and, and Bavabasar, right? But, or, you know, we're in the realm of Simon Shachach, but like, that is at least a stated ideal. And certainly of the people we call Bale Halacha, that was, you know, an often realized ideal, right? So this to me is the point that we, we want to understand of Halacha being in some sense much smaller than what we mean by law and much larger than what we mean by law. And that's why I call this Halacha the rabbinic idea of law to try to like get at what that is. And that is a system in which the distinction between something highly practical and everyday relevant and something totally theoretical is while for us as moderns, or for me, I always ask, is something that I'm always asking, because that's naturally the way as a law professor I think about law, how does it affect the world, is not a central question uh, for the halacha. What, what I wrote in the book, and I want to start with like, the very first mission in Shas is already telling you this. Everybody knows the first mission in Shas. It starts with something that is very, very practical, right? Maybe it's like Kriyash by Arvis. And you know, as far as we can tell, People have been, you know, we call it Davening Mar, actually not Davening Mar, right? That's from an estimate, right? Kriyashma, I always say this word Davening conflates a whole bunch of different things that for in, in, in halacha are separate. But let's just talk about Kriyashma, right? It's understood to be a mitzvah daraisa, and it seems to go pretty far back that at least, at least in the Mishnah, it understands this to be an, a, a universal obligation. And I always thought it was like interesting that the very first Mishnah has a story, right? You go and imagine, right, Rabban Gamliel, you know, the dad, he's up, he's like watching the clock, where are these boys, these boys come back from a party, and they're like, you know, boys who come back from the party, and he says, me, my name, and like, oh, we forgot, ah. he says, look, you're good, it's not, okay, so like, to me, you start there in very, in very practical thing, and what does then the Mishnah do? So it says that, Rabbi Leo says, that really can do it until Avos HaShachar, but uh, but then it says that really we do to Chatzel Saharchik Adam and Aver. And then the, the Mishnah cites everything that Chazal say to do until uh, Chatzos, you can really do until Yahweh Monashachar. What are the other examples? Hector Chalavim Bevar. So now we're back in the world of the Mikdash, right? We know Rabban Gamliel and the people in that Mishnah, Rabbi Leib, Rabbi Lazar, are post Mikdash people. And yet immediately the Mishnah unproblematically takes something that is then, and I would say now, a feature of everyday life, i.e. Kriyashma Shalarvis, and connects it, weaves it together with something that that Mishnah seems to be post-Mikdash, right? Given the people we know in Revolution, they're the one, two generations after, immediately says that this forms part of a unit of things 
that can really be done until alos, but we say don't do them after chatzos. And the other ones are mikdash related. And like, that's just an unproblematic combination. Whereas I think as soon as you think of like practice talacha or in a corner more legal approach, lawyerly approach, you're like, wait a minute, things that are theoretical should be different things that are actual because, you know, different sort of pressures are, are involved over there and whatnot. But I'm like, yeah, that's the way I think about the world. But let's realize that's not the way the mission thinks about the world. And let's just sit with that. Why do you think it is? That, I mean, one of the interesting uh, parts of the book, you discuss uh, the views of the Rashba and the Ran, right, who are sort of aware of the fact that I'm sure, you know, before them, people were aware of it as well. But, you know, as you alluded to, that if you were to try to apply uh, certain aspects of Jewish civil law into sort of real world applications, it'd be almost impossible to sort of uh, you know run a society based on sort of normative halacha. So the Ran and the Rashba sort of address this overtly. Right. And in the book, you know that it, it took a long time for this to become part of traditional Jewish discourse. You know, it's not like before the Rashba and the Ran, this was a common theme in the works of the Rishonim. So I'm curious in terms of this issue of like the non-applicability of the law, like what, what took, why do you think it took so long in terms of the rabbi's own self-consciousness about sort of them engaging this enterprise and then other Rishonim, whoever it was, was Rashi, whoever else it was, was sort of, you know, engaging and in interpreting the text and it only got to the Rashba and the Ran to sort of articulate in writing this idea that, wait a second, if we try to apply the system in real world terms, it'll almost be impossible. Yeah, no, that's a really good question. I, I'm not sure I have the best answer. So you would say, I would say, first, we do see flares of this, right, in Chazal themselves, as we talked about, with the Ben Sermer and the Bayes um, and the uh, and the Irani Dachas. They say it's not going to happen, right? They, they put it out in their cards, right? The famous Mishnah in the end of the first parak of Makos, right? That uh, about the, about the, uh, the, the viability of, of the Sanhedrin, right? In uh, capital punishments, where Bikiva says, I, "I would have never created. I've never put anyone to death." Another opinion says, "Right, in kind of, right, you're about to, uh, you're going to create murders." Right. So there is, there is some, uh, there is some sort of, you know, I would say there's like breadcrumbs of an awareness that wait a minute, like this doesn't always work. Right. Shema ben Shatach going way back. What we do with a melech. Right. So like you can call together statements that sort of show an awareness of this, but it's never organized. So like your question is, listen, like I say like Tosos, right? Tosos who, who reads every line of the Gemara very carefully and is extremely good at pointing out like this just doesn't interest them, right? And as you said, it's not really the Rashba kind of, and there's really the Ran in a, and I even say here too, right? In a unusual medium for Arisha, right? The Ran, the Drushes Ran that we're talking about are, really theoretical essays or essay theoretical essays about like the nature of the halachic system we shown them typically don't write that way right we show them write commentaries they write uh on chumish on gemara right they write essays on more theological concepts again looking thinking of the ramban um they write various chiburim right they don't do that right and the and by the way even though the ron there he uses language that is, he's taken from philosophy, right? And so much so that there was a period in time where people were not sure that this was the Ran in the sense of Rabbi Nunisim because he just sounds so different from the way, uh, you know, he does in the back of the Gemara on the Riff or in other places. So so here, here's what I say I wanted to come to before. Right? There's something that happens, right? If we go to the period before, think of what we teach, you know, in high school uh, comp or freshman comp in college, right? The five-paragraph essay. Right? And what do we say? We say, listen, you have to tell me your thesis. 
right? You then have to, in an organized way, defend your thesis with proofs and then do a conclusion, right? And that to us is an intuitive way to write. And I would say, if we go to Jews in the pre-Chazalistic era, talking primarily of Philo and Josephus, I don't think you would confuse them for 21st century writers, but they're basically writing, A, themselves under their own name, in a way that tells you, here's my argument, here's my, here my, uh, here's my thesis, here are my arguments, here's my conclusion, in a way that is, of course, different, but basically very much the linear uh, grandparent of the way we would train people to write today. So, and I think it's important to say this happens before the era of Chazal. Then come Chazal, and basically that disappears, right? All of Chazal literature, certainly the Bavli, the Rishami, the Tosefta, the Midrashim, none of them are written by a single person, right? They're all compilations. None of them have a thesis, right? None of them are organized or structured of like, you know, with, with discrete arguments that lead to something, right? They're, oh, what they are, these like statements that are isolated, and you can argue how big or small a sugi is, right? Um, they're, they're units, right? And the academics call these pericopes, because, you know, they're so good, right? Even today, right, we say, oh, it goes to the next Mishnah, right? But of course, that's just where a printer decided to put the Mishnah. If you look at the manuscripts, there's the whole Mishnah of the Perak and then all the Gemara, right? So where a so you begins or ends, right? Two dots, all the things we use are all basically uh, fairly modern uh, printing conventions. Um, so they're, they, and they just sort of like run on and they begin and they end, right? And then in the period of the Gaonim, after Chazal, right, or Sajagon, or Shuragon, others, you start getting things that are again written by a single person. Of course, the Rambam is probably the, the most famous exemplar of this, with a kind of discrete argument and a discrete structure. So, one of the things that to me is just so interesting, and this is like you, you can argue about why this happens or what it means, but I don't think you can argue with the facts that the entire period we call Chazal, different than what comes before and different than what comes after has this literature has a certain type of character. Therefore, when we approach it, we have to know that. And I would say that therefore we have to not run away from it. I think sometimes you get so into the Rishon Mahron that you're basically running, like lean into the weirdness a little bit, see what's going on over there um, to do that. So that, here, to, um, the long-winded way of answering, that structure of writing doesn't lead to the type of way of where really the Ron is the most direct. He says, wait, I don't understand. The Torah's criminal system doesn't work, right? And then he has his answer. He's, of course, based on the Rashba, who's doing this, I would say, in a less theoretical way and more sort of answering a question. I mean, it's a great question. They come, to, it's alluded to what I said before with the Basin. They come to Rashba, and he's basically trying to figure out are people keeping the halacha in their homes? And they come, well, who's going to know? Well, the people in the homes. Well, you know what they are? They're Croton, they're Pusillatus. And they come and say, wait a minute, how can you rely on the testimony of, of people who are Pusillatus to know if people are keeping the, you know, keeping the Allah in their homes? And he says, well, no, those apply to the basin Haggadol, that's in Yerushalayim, that's the you know, real Bezdin, the Vayanal, Ryan Base, or whatever. It could be 70, 71, 72. That's not what we're doing here. And and he, and then the Ron runs with this, that this creates this like dual system of like real halacha, and then real halacha, right? So this sort of like ideal, abstract system that doesn't exactly govern, and then the actual system of governance. But my 
Nihakatim, but my kind of criticism of the Ran is that he creates this like as two very separate domains. And kind of what I write in the book is, but they're really much messier and, and they're much kind of, it's it's hard to know where one ends and one begins. And you could certainly see some things in one end and see some things in the other end, but part of the nature of certainly the Gemara and then the halachic process generally is that there could be a kind of fluidity and instability of which categories are halacha and which categories are halacha lemaisa. Even that word right there, halacha lemaisa, right, as contrasted with halacha, is already telling, right? So what's halacha? It's not halacha lemaisa. So it could be shitas we don't hold of, right? But it could also be halachos that don't apply right this moment, right? So we say things like Meikar Hadin, Midoraisa, Medina de Talmuda. I say there's actually a third category. There's Halacha, there's Halacha Lemaisa, and then there's Halacha Lemaisa Lemaisa. Right. What are the actual practices? Because, for example, um, you know, Talmudic tort law, Bor and Shor, are Halacha Lemaisa in the sense that they're Paskin in the Rif and in the Rush and in the Tour and the Shulchan Arach. They're not part of our functional constitution of Jewish communities. Right. right? So even the word halachalamaisa sort of has a bunch. And then there are things that we do that are like, can I get what you would get from a, from a simple reading of the Shulchan Arach or, or the Ramam or whatever you want? So, so I think there's actually three categories running around here. And part of what this book is, is attempt to say, okay, if halachalamaisa is law that's actually applied, what's this other category of halach? Uh, maybe we can end by sort of referencing something that you mentioned a few minutes ago, um, which is the unique sort of literary style of Chazal, especially when contrasted with what came before and after it. And, and you make a really interesting point in the book. I mean, I, I, when I read it the first time, it sort of, I didn't realize sort of, you know, the extent of the claim. And when I reread the book a second time, I, re I realized, wow, this is actually an amazing insight. Oh, you're, you're, um, you're ahead of my wife, kids, and mom. Okay, so... so you talk about the way in which... Uh, that's because you read it once. <laughs> okay, so... You talk in the book about the way in which uh, the rabbis sort of engage with Greek wisdom, and then you contrast that with the way in which the Christians right engage with Greek wisdom. And, and one of the claims that you point out in the book is that the rabbis, when when contrasted with the Christians, were actually a lot more resistant, right? Just sort of you know dialoguing and thinking about the possibility of making Greek wisdom part of like our intellectual sort of worldview. And then you sort of speculate or maybe make a more compelling argument about why that was the case. And I think one of the things you point out in the book is that it, it may have something to do with the way the literary genre of Chazal was constructed, right? When contrasted with uh, the Christian approach to sort of engaging, I'm sorry, the Greek approach to engaging with knowledge. So maybe you could just sort of describe exactly what you mean by that. In other words, what, what was the tension for the rabbis uh, in sort of thinking about Greek wisdom as this threat, primarily or at least partially because of the way it was structured? Right. So admittedly, here's a here's what we know, right? There's a number of places where Chazal are skeptical of Chachma Yavanis, right? Different positions in the Rishonim, what that means. The Maisa that can mean a lot or a little, depending on, on which route you take. But clearly, there's some, some kind of tension there. And as I point out, right, so I teach in, I, we didn't, I don't think we mentioned, Villanova is a Catholic university. Um, so, you know, Aristotle is part of, I mean, of course, everyone understands he was a pre-Christian Greek, right? But given the way he's adopted in the Church Fathers and in particularly Thomas Aquinas, right, he becomes, to kind of riff in our language, he becomes part of the Masorah um, in a way that uh, 
And maybe the Rambam thought this way, right? But I think that in that way, the Rambam is probably, at least he would say he's on a poll, if not a, a minority opinion. In a way that's more problematic, I think it's fair to say, uh, it, it, uh, from, 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 from a halachic perspective or from a Talmudic perspective. And then I wonder whether how much of that is created, is, is, is centered around uh, the way of thinking about things. So, you know, I'll take an easy example. So a very Greek question to ask is, what is truth or what is beauty? Right. And then what you'll see in the classic Greek philosophers, they'll like, you know, Socratically, Tamina you know, will like assess what do we mean by truth? What do we mean by beauty? What now Chazal don't think that way, right? And this to get into, and I say this a little bit, we always say, oh, that's a theoretical halacha, right? Now, we don't mean theoretical actually in the philosophical sense of that term, meaning there's very little abstract theoretical content in these things. What we mean is it's a non-applied halacha, right? So you're not going to see Chazal say, what is beauty? What are they going to say? And, you know, it's a song. We all know. Kates and Merak and Lifnei Akala, right? And there's a machlokas Beisham Hill about the relative value of truth versus social grace, right? Uh, and so that's a combination by truth and beauty right there. So in other words, it's not seen as an abstract question of in itself. It's sort of pushed into a mitzvah or a halachic context. And that is where where you you break it up um, to take a very different type of example, which I sort of reference and maybe a little bit like what we did. You know, today we talk about the life work balance, right? So you're never going to find a sigya on the life on the life work balance in 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 Gemara until you understand that. Wait a minute, there's sigya and brachos. This is kriyashma, right? You can say when you're walking, if you're working, barosha ilan, barosha nadbach, as opposed to shmonasrei that you got to get. So here we say, okay. You can take this a little about the nature of Kriya Shema Shemitah, right? it certainly is, but it's also, this is a way of like getting into religious obligations versus financial obligations versus professional obligations versus family obligations, right? Now, sometimes I always say that, uh, I don't know, we're talking a lot about brachas today, but I guess that's good, um, right? <laughs> You know, only in the Gemara are you more likely in the middle of davening to be uh, accosted by a lion, a tiger, a snake, or a king than a whining three-year-old, um, right? So that was funny. Like, I don't know. Everywhere I've davened, I've got like a kid's yanking on me, and, and that's my question. But there too, in other words, danger and presence. And so, you know, mipnea kavod, mipnea shal, mipnea yira, right? So all these things are ways of asking this question, but they are not abstract and they're not theoretical because they don't start from like kind of first principles down. They always start in media rest, right? In the middle of a mitzvah, an obligation, an avayr, whatever it is. And sort of from there you work out. And therefore I think like it's it's harder to make global claims, right? Which I try not to do in the book. I try to make local claims. Here's what I understand from this again, from this thing. And, and then of course you have to, you know, build them together and kind of create some sort of way of behaving. I think that's harder precisely because you're always nestled within these facts. In a certain way, it's much more the method of lawyers and of philosophers, right? Because lawyers always start with the case and always start like in the middle, right? You never start from first principles. And I think the Gemara rarely starts from first principles. It sort of takes certain, you know, the basic, the, you know, the Torah narrative and the mitzvah obligations as it's given. And from there, it goes into these discussions. And I think that that is the way it's done. And certainly it's the way that it has molded uh, the society that sort of references it and comes after it. Of course, as we know, with time, certainly there are shown them, and certainly, certainly, you know, in the last 200 years, there's been a lot of Jewish expression that doesn't look this way. 
Maybe we could just uh, ask you one last question, not ex directly related to the book, although uh, certainly part of the book's appeal is that at the beginning of the book, uh, you have dedications. And I assume many people skip over dedications. But as I mentioned to you before we started, I was intrigued um, as to sort of to have Sir Varen Lichtenstein's name at the dedication page. And the dedication reads to my Rosh Hashiva Varen Lichtenstein, who have never written this book, but without whom this book would never have been written. So that to me was quite fascinating. In other words, number one, why do you think uh, Rivara never would have written this book, right? And, and number two, sort of, to, to what extent, you know, was his influence, right, sort of a very um, central piece of your writing of this book, even though you also argue simultaneously that he himself could never have written this book for, you know, reasons you'll articulate. Yeah, so thank you for paying attention to that. Um, I, I spent quite a lot of time on that. And truth is, to say that uh, Rebbezin Tova Lichtenstein when I, and, and Esti, when I saw them one year at the Gush dinner, shortly after the book came out, they came up to me and they were, they were very, um, they were very moved by, by this. So that really gave me a lot of uh, a chizik. You know, I would say writing a book is sort of like telling a joke and waiting four years to see if anyone laughs. <laughs> right. um, because, you know, it's like, it's a lot of work. I'm not a quick writer. It took me forever. And then uh, you don't know how it's going to be received. Baruch Hashem, I think uh, the book was received uh, very well. And that, that meant something. But but here's, to answer your question, here's, here's what I wanted. I did feel, I felt two things simultaneously that I tried to capture. Um, I, you know, I, I learned in Haaretzion for sure. I consider myself a Talmud of the Gush. But I know that I'm not the like standard Gush, you know, I'm, I'm not exactly on that like perfectly you know, Gush track. And I never, ever wanted any of my own ideas or my own everything to be attributed to Ravara. And I never said, oh, you know, occasionally if I heard something, I might say it. But I never speak in that voice. You know, I grew up in the era where, you know, where everybody said the rub said this, the rub said this, the rub said this, and it was just a, a cacophony. And I really didn't want to do that. I I had too much cupboard for Ravara uh, to put anything of mine on him. And therefore, very much want to say, this is my book. Um, on the, and I'm writing this not as a Talmud in the in the very traditional sense of like, you know, you know, me piv. Uh, on the other hand, I say that I would have never, you know, that that this book wouldn't have happened had I not been at Haaretzion and not learned from him uh, both at the time. And then, to be frank, many things that he said, I didn't really understand until years later. Um, it, I, I, I feel that in some ways I was a Lemafreya Talmud. In other words, I was there. And all this stuff was clanking around my head in my in my in my early twenties, and then roughly around the thirties, when you know I started like understanding what he was doing, and it kind of all like clicked a little bit. And I think a lot of his the insights of sort of what is happening here has a kind of surface layer, and then has a deeper layer. And um, now he was not in, particularly into like literary. I mean, he was into literary chumash, not so much to the Gemara. Uh, but that way of saying that there are ideas present here that we ought to understand what they are and the tools in which to read a sugya and assess it, that I got from him. And I thought I couldn't possibly um, not note that. So the formulation I came up with was without whom this book would never have written, but he would have never written it because I think you know, there's some academic things, historical things, legal things, connections to other bodies of of, of, of human thought that Ravarin generally kept out of his year. I wanted very much to respect that Legabe him, with, but at the same time say that Legabe me, these were influences. Fascinating. Okay. Well, Dr. Simon, thank you so much for coming on the Sarah Human Podcast. This was 
Really an amazing uh, conversation, very enlightening. And I just want to recommend to anybody who hasn't read the book, the book is called Halacha, the Rabbinic Idea of Law by Professor Chaim Seyman. It really is a masterpiece. And uh, thank you so much again for uh, giving us your time. Sure. And I hope it's in your, on your yeshiva's bookshelf. <laughs> Absolutely. Thanks so much for joining us today. If you enjoyed listening to this episode of Tzarech Iyun, please share it with others. Also, might appreciate being part of this conversation. If you haven't yet, please rate, review. And of course, don't hesitate to be in touch with any questions, comments, and topic suggestions at oraitapodcast at gmail.com. This is Tzarech Iyun, a podcast of Yeshivat Oraita.